Today's scripture reading is James 4, 6 through 10, and you can find it in your pew Bible on page 1013. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is the word of God. Good morning, church. We are continuing in our series in the book of James, the New Testament letter of James. The series is called Real Wisdom, Real Faith. James is a practical book. It's, it's very punchy. It's kind of like back and forth, right one after the other, command, here's how to live. It's, it's written for Christians to understand this really important truth. That the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is not just good news that we believe. It is good news that changes how we live. That's his motivation. That's his driving thrust in this letter. We're in James chapter 4. If you're just joining us, you're jumping in. It's always a good time to jump into the Bible, especially here in James. James 4 begins by addressing the conflict in our relationships. And like a surgeon, James has been making some deep cuts to expose expose our hearts so that by grace we can humbly do the work, the hard work of repenting and restoring relationships by His grace. James is telling us this is wisdom from above. Wisdom from above. Specifically, cultivating a heart of humility. And that's where James turns to next in James 4, 6-10. As we look this morning at grace for the humble. Grace for the humble. Let me just be honest as we get started. Nobody loves the idea of being humble. Humility doesn't win games. Humility typically doesn't produce spectacular music. Humility doesn't propel men and women into places of power. It doesn't help us get ahead. Humility is not popular. And yet I would submit to you this morning that there are few things more vital to your spiritual walk than cultivating general, genuine humility. But none of us wants to be humble, do we? I was humbled a few weeks ago. My car was in the shop a few weeks ago, and it was in there for a few days. And I graciously got another vehicle from from friends in the church who let me borrow their car while mine was getting fixed. And it was a much larger car. I drive a small Honda Civic, and this was a much larger SUV. It felt very uh, spacious, and it was a smooth ride. It was newer than mine. I really enjoyed it. Kind of wanted it. And I was just driving around Bowie. I'm living large. Look at me in this big SUV. One day, I'm driving around town, and I hear a boom, 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 boom. What's that? Over my window at a stop at a stoplight, and I hear a tss. 
Are you kidding me? A flat tire on someone else's car. So I quickly pull into a, a street I'd never been on before, right in the middle of Bowie. I got to find somewhere quick. I get out of the car. It's completely flat. I look around as if someone would just show up miraculously to help me. Nobody was there. Now I have a confession to make. I know given my build and, and seeing how strong I look that you would think I'm, I'm good with cars. <laughs> but I'm not. In fact, I hate working on cars. Fixing a flat tire is are part of my nightmares. So I'm alone. And I do the thing that, that I know best how to do. I pray and I call someone for help. And I call, I start calling my friends, everyone I know in the area, everyone's busy, nobody's answering, no one can help me. It finally dawns on me that I'm going to have to do this by myself. And so I throw a little pity party, then I got to work, I get the spare, you know, my car's so simple, it's a small little thing in the trunk, I can pick it up. This has like a full wheel, it's under the vehicle, I gotta jack the vehicle up, I gotta pull this wheel down, it's heavier than me, and I'm, I'm getting it around, I'm looking, anyone help, nobody wants to help me, and so I'm, here I am, jacking up this SUV, and I, and I, I look, I'm doing well, I get the lug nuts off, I, I get everything going, all I have to do is pull off the wheel and I'm done, and I go to pull the wheel off, and it will not bump. I mean, I start bumping it a little bit. I start pushing, pulling, moving. Nothing. Nothing. And I'm frustrated because this is the last step. I need to get out of here. I'm already tired. My hands are greasy. My face is greasy because I'm dumb and I touch my face. <laughs> and so I, I call someone again. Finally, someone answers. They can't help me, but they say, oh, yeah, Mark, that happens sometimes. Here's what you have to do. And I'm thinking it's going to get real technical. He says, you need to kick it as hard as you can. <laughs> you want me to kick my friend's vehicle as hard as I can? Yes, all over it, kick it as if you're trying to break it. That's how you'll get it off. Okay, thank you. So, go off the phone. I start kicking my friend's car as hard as I can. Honest to goodness, I'm just wailing on it. I see the jack moving like it's going to fall off the jack. And as the Lord would have it, here I am banging the heck out of this car and a church member drives by. <laughs> and she sees her pastor. She rolls down her window and literally says, Pastor? Are you okay? No, I'm not okay. No. She lets her grandkids come out to offer me some moral support. Sure enough, kicking it worked. Who would have thought? I got it loosened. I got the wheel off. I get the new wheel on. I get on my way. Listen, it was humbling. I felt inadequate, overwhelmed. It was hard. Do you want to grow in humility? Do you need to cultivate humility this morning? Not with cars, but spiritually? Look, rather than trying to convince you on why you should want to grow in humility, let me just frame it the way James does here in this passage. Here, here let me ask you this. Do you want more grace in your life? Do you see your need for more grace in your life? 
Do you long for grace to be the basis of your relationships and not performance, not not filling a standard? Do you long for grace to be the ultimate measure of your life? Do you need grace for that secret habit that plagues you? Or that sin struggle that is so obvious to those around you? Do you need grace to endure the trials of living in a broken world? In other words, did you come in this morning in need of grace? If your answer is yes, and I hope it is, then from James' perspective, access to God's unlimited, unconditional grace is not only possible, it's available through humility. I know this is countercultural. But the kingdom of God is fundamentally countercultural, right? The kingdom of God is you gain by losing. The way up is, is actually the way down. Strength is found in weakness. I want you today to experience the infinite supply of grace by going down into humility. How do we do that? Look at what James says. Lesson number one. How do we grow in humility? How do we experience more of God's grace? Number one, submit to God. Submit to God. It's clear from what James has been addressing in this letter that the early Christians were fighting with each other. They're using their words harshly. There was bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. They're destroying one another. And James writes this letter to say, friends, there's a better way. God gives more grace. It's the way of grace. Look at verse 6 again. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. God gives more grace. In other words, there will always be more than enough grace from God no matter what situation or trial you find yourself in today. And how do you gain access to and experience this amazing grace? By humbling yourself. Do you see what he's saying? God's gift of grace can only be received by those who willingly admit they need it. He says the proud, on the other hand, God opposes them. They can only meet, if you have pride in your heart, you can only expect to meet resistance from God. He literally opposes the proud. Listen, a proud life is hard to grace. Is there pride in your heart today? Don't think that it's insignificant or irrelevant. God sees your false sense of self-sufficiency and often he'll say this, okay, let's see how far that takes you. James wants us to feel our inadequacy, feel our sinfulness, feel our brokenness to, to such a degree that, he, that it leads us down into true humility. He gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, he says, therefore. In other words, this is the response to humility. Submit yourself to God. The word submit means this, to willingly yield to another. To willingly yield to another. How do we submit to God? How do we submit to God? Fundamentally, it means we obey what he says. It's like a commanding officer in the military giving an order to a subordinate. The response is to submit and obey the order. But listen, listen to me. 
To submit to God is not simply to obey what he says just because he's Lord. You might be in a job or a situation where you're called to do what the person says simply because they have authority over you, and that's fine, and there's a part of that for us and God, but we don't just simply obey because he's Lord. We submit to God by obeying what he says even when it doesn't make sense because we believe he is wise. He's not just Lord, he's good and he's wise. You see, submission is more than obedience. Submission is whenever we find that God's will is hard to do, when it's confusing, and yet we still do God's will. You see, submission requires humility because there are often times when you are called to obey God's word, called to, to live the Christian life in a way that will not make sense to you and it will not make sense to your coworkers, and it will not make sense to your roommates and it may not make sense to your spouse and it may not make sense to your kids or your parents but God has called you to live in a way where you honor him willingly because you trust that he's not just Lord but that he's good and wise. What is he calling you today in your relationships that you may not understand and it may not make any sense to you but requires your willing submission? How might he be calling you to use your resources or your time or your talents for his kingdom in a way that might stretch you but cause you to trust his heart even more? Or is there an area of your life or if you're honest, you're silently thinking, I actually know better than God. I know better than God. You say, I would never say that. Yeah, but look at your life. Are you saying it with your actions? Are you saying it with your attitudes? You can say, I believe God, I trust his word. But if I look at your relationships, is that true? If I look at how you use your money, is that true? If I look at how you use your time and how you go to work, is that true? Is there some area of your life where, where God is, is calling you to, 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 to trust Him, to obey Him, and you don't like how it feels, you don't understand what it will mean for your future, you simply don't understand what He's doing, but He's calling you today to humbly submit to Him without reservation. That's what humility looks like. That's how you receive grace, more grace. James is saying if you want to experience the grace of God, you must humbly submit to God, believing that he is wise and good. But he also makes it clear that to experience the grace of God, you must also do this. You must resist the devil. Verse 7, submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. In our society, the devil is trivialized. He's cartoonized, right? He's not a big deal. But from the Bible's perspective, the devil is a big deal. He's real and he's a dangerous being and he's hell-bent on destroying you. Whether you think he's, he's something in the movies or not, he's real and he's out to destroy your soul. The, the devil's pride, this is, I, we could do a whole sermon on the devil. I'm, I'm, let's, let's just, let's just uh, presume that he's real, okay? The devil's primary mission is to draw you away from God. Did you know that? To cause you to doubt his goodness and question his wisdom. How do I know that's his primary mission, to draw you away from God? Because that's what he's been doing ever since the Garden of Eden. 
How does he do this? How does he seek to draw you away from God? How does he seek to draw a wedge between you and God? John 8, Jesus tells us, Jesus, who actually believed in the devil, who was himself tempted by the devil, that'll give you a sense of whether you think the devil's real or not. But Jesus actually says, the devil is a liar and the father of lies. Revelation 12 calls him the deceiver and the accuser of the, the, accuser of the brethren. Which means the devil's main weapon against you is the use of lies. He doesn't come with swords ablazing. He doesn't come with an army. He comes simply with words. Simply with half-truths, untruths. Did God actually say? And Adam and Eve are like, well, you know, now that you say that, I do wonder... Uh, the devil is constantly seeking to convince you of several lies. Let me just give you two of the most insidious lies. They're not the only ones, but they are, they are insidious. The first lie is the lie of autonomy. The lie that you are an independent human being with the right to live as you wish. No one can tell you how to live. You should pursue whatever relationship you want. You should do what, take whatever job you want. Whatever you think will make you happy, you are free to self-actualize. Isn't that the message in our world? Believing that lie is as deadly as taking a fish out of water and saying you are free fish to go wherever you want and do whatever you want. I don't care if Pastor Brady tells you, you live the life you want to live. Great. Is that freedom for the fish? No, it's death. It's destruction. The sooner we cut through the lie that we are autonomous, the sooner we can realize our, our need for God, that He is the one who made us and not we ourselves, as we read this morning. The second lie is that of self-sufficiency, which says... You have everything you need within yourself to be what you were created to be and to do what you were designed to do. You are self-sufficient. You don't need wisdom from above. You don't need to depend on your spouse or your coworkers or your friends or your church members. You don't need Christian community. You don't need to confess your sins to one another. You don't need to bear the burdens of others and you certainly don't need them bearing your burdens. You are self-sufficient. Listen, there's only one truly self-sufficient being in the universe, and it's not you. True freedom and sufficiency comes when you yoke your life to Christ, when you attach your life to Christ, when you live in complete and utter dependence on Him. Again, it's the upside-down nature of the kingdom. You want to experience sufficiency? Then admit you are insufficient. You want to be filled? Admit you're empty. You want to experience life? Die to self. And the, Lord, and the Lord is speaking through James, warning us, resist the devil. Stay in the fight, Christian. Push back against his insidious lies. Paul says in Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God so you may stand against the schemes of the devil. Schemes. Christian, are you resisting? Are you resisting? Are you actively engaged in the battle? You say, Mark, I'm so beat up, so tired. I get it. 
I'm right there with you. That's why James reminds us of this very important truth. He says, resist the devil and what? He will flee from you. Do you see what he's saying? Whatever power Satan may have, Christian, you can be confident that God has given you the ability to overcome that power. 1 John 4, 4 tells us, He who is in you is greater than he who is within the world. Now you have to believe that promise. You have to live as if it's true. And sometimes you have to live as if it's true before you actually experience the truthfulness of it. I know that it can feel impossible sometimes to overcome sin. I know firsthand the feeling of failing over and over in my relationships, in my thought life, in my feeling of wanting to be valued and and appreciated. I mean, I could go on and on. I could list my sins for you. Here's the point. I understand what it's like to feel like, like, it, like it's, a, it's a losing battle. But listen, there is hope today. If you're a Christian, your sin has been canceled on the cross. Amen. The curse of sin has no hold on you. Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Didn't we just sing it? The death, the debt has been paid, paid in full. Not a little bit, not some of it. Whatever your debt is, Jesus wrote a check out for the complete amount and he wrote it in his own blood and it's paid in full. You are not guilty. You are free, Christian. As John Piper would say, the, the, the power for conquering sin is the reality that Christ has already canceled your sin. The power for conquering your besetting sins is the reality that Christ has already canceled them. So stay in the fight, Christian, because this is what humility looks like, James says. No matter how much you've been beaten down, keep resisting, because as you do, he gives more power. He gives more grace. Next, James says, not just resist the devil and he'll flee from you, but draw near to God and he will draw near to you. If you're still wondering, well, how do I resist the devil? There's actually a connection here. You resist the devil by drawing near to God. Did you know that? The primary way that we resist the devil, that we cut through his lies, is by drawing near to God our Father through his Son, Jesus. What does that look like practically? How do we draw near to God? First, we draw near to God by knowing and believing his word. By knowing and believing his word. How did Jesus resist the devil's temptations in Matthew 4? Jesus is in the wilderness. He's driven out there by the Spirit. And he's fasting and praying. And the devil says, ah, you're physically weak. You're emotionally tired. You're drained. This is my opportunity. And the devil comes in. And what does he do? He offers lies. Just just a little bit of a lie. Just enough. He actually quotes Scripture out of context, to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He's tired, he's drained, but he knew, he had meditated on, he had memorized God's word, and in the moment of temptation, he believed God's word. We draw near to God by knowing and and believing his word. We also draw near to God through prayer. Through prayer. Through, through desperate prayer. 
I don't mean like, you know, you recite the Lord's Prayer. That's fine. I'm talking about prayer where you pour out your hearts to Him. I'm talking about prayer where you keep affirming God's goodness even when you don't understand His ways. Where you keep praising Him, confessing sin to Him, giving thanks to Him, asking for help from Him. This draws your heart to Him, doesn't it? It draws you nearer to Him. It, it allows you to sense and, and, and experience his, his, his abiding presence. And then here's the stunning promise. Draw near to God and He will do what? Draw near to you. Listen, God, God never goes anywhere, just so you know that. Christian, look at me. God has not gone anywhere. He doesn't go get coffee when you need Him most. He's not taking a nap because he's tired of all the stuff that everybody else has been talking about. No. He's always there, right there, readily there, willingly there. You might go wandering. You might be like, ah, la, la, and then soon you're like, I need God. He turned around. He's like, yeah, I'm there. What you been doing, man? He is there. He will draw near. I don't know what you're dealing with today. I don't know what burdens you're bearing. I don't know what sins you're struggling with. But here's what I know. You, not future you, present you with all the messes, with all the things you bring to to the table. If you will draw near to God, the God of heaven, the God who has already come down and entered our messes in the person of Jesus, the God who died on the cross for you, that God, this God will draw near to you. Do you believe this? Do you want more grace? Draw near to God. And the grace that he offers is he will draw nearer to you. He will make himself more known to you. He will show you his peace in ways you've never experienced before. He will give you power to resist ways and, uh, sin in ways you've never had before. He will renew your mind in ways you've never had before. He can do it. He promises. Do you want to experience more grace? Then repent of your sin. Continuing in verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Now he's getting heavier, isn't he? He uses this language, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. This is actually Old Testament language. It's the language of the priests who would do the purifying rituals. They would go through all kinds of rituals to purify their bodies uh, as in preparation to minister before God's presence. And if they didn't do that, they were in trouble. James is calling us to a deeper repentance than we can ever imagine. A repentance that involves both external behavior and internal attitudes. Notice he doesn't just say, stop your sinful behavior. He doesn't just say, cleanse your hands. He also says, purify your hearts. You double-minded. The word there literally says, double-souled. Double-souled. What does that mean? He's, he's, it's, 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 a, it's, it's vivid imagery. He's saying, listen, it means a part of your heart is in love with God. And a part of your heart is in love with the world. And you're double-souled. You're conflicted. 
One of the early church fathers, Augustine of Hippo, said this. He famously said, The essence of sin is disordered love. We just think our sin is, I do wrong things. No, 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 no. You got to peel back the onion. You got to see, like, sin is, starts in the heart. It's a disordered love. In other words, what does he mean? Sin is not just when you do wrong things. It's that we love less important things more it's that we, are, we love more, more important things less than we ought, and that wrong prioritization leads to discontentment and disorder in our lives. We love comfort. We love safety. We love perfect health. We love all these things and more than what we love God. And so that when they're out of whack, we feel a sense of discontentment. We're frustrated. And, and Augustine says, it's your loves that are disordered, not just that you're angry. The anger is just, a, is just a symptom of what's going on inside. How do we address disordered love? James says, be wretched, mourn, weep, purify, repent. Change in your behavior and in your hearts. Repentance starts with a serious and sober, sober acknowledgement of your sin. Let me just ask you, do you really understand how serious your sin is? Do you really understand the implications of the fact that you have rebelled and I have rebelled against the Holy God? If you need a reminder, just look at the cross. God doesn't see our sin and say, ah, it's not that bad. <laughs> Boys will be boys. Girls do those kind of things. I just have a cookie. No. God doesn't sweep our sin under the rug and ignore it. Our, ki- our sin killed the Son of God. The cross is the most brutal and savage form of torture. The cross shows us that our sin is so evil that it deserved the very wrath of God, the very justice of God put on Jesus on our behalf. A justice so heavy that it crushed Jesus, not just physically, but spiritually. A wrath so awful that Jesus cried out in utter, utter loneliness, utter forsakenness, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced hell for you and me. And the more we understand this, the deeper our sense of grief will be, no matter what particular sins you and I are struggling with, It doesn't matter what it is. Anger, lust, gluttony, self-righteousness. It doesn't matter. Laziness, cutting words. It doesn't matter. Bitterness, greed. You name it. You plug in. What's your sin? What's your sin? And now let me ask you, have you ever wept over your sin? Have you ever cried over the countless ways in which your heart has rejected God over and over again? Or did you enter this morning more like the Pharisee in in Luke 18 who went to the temple to pray and Jesus says, this man stands up and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people over here. Even now, Is there a part of you that is secretly thinking, God, I'm thankful I'm not as messed up as those people who have addictions. 
I'm thankful that I'm not like those who've been divorced, those who've made financially foolish decisions, those who have sent their kids to this kind of school or that kind of school, those who live in this kind of house, those who drive that kind of car. You fill in the blank. Or did you walk in here like the tax collector in that same parable whom Jesus says was so broken over his sin that all he could say was, God be merciful to me, a sinner. What's your posture today? I find that the older I get, the easier, easier I can be moved to tears by a heartwarming movie, a wedding, right? A beautiful song, like they touch me. And yet if I'm honest, I find I don't have that deeper sense of emotion about my sin. I'm confessing that to you. I clearly don't appreciate the horrors of my sin and what my sin has done to my Savior and to those around me. Godly grief over sin is where repentance begins. You don't graduate from repentance. Martin Luther, first theses of those 95 that he nailed on the wall, all of life for a Christian is one of repentance. You know why? Because you'll never be a grace graduate. And so you will always be needing to repent to experience His grace. How do you experience the grace of God? Repent of your sin. But then He gets to this final thing. How do you experience the grace of God? Humble yourself ultimately. He says it explicitly. Humble yourself before the Lord and trust God to exalt you. Trust God to lift you up. Trust the promise of God. Grief over your sin should be a normal part of your life as a Christian. But please hear me. It's not the totality of your life as a Christian. God doesn't call us to humble ourselves in order to keep us down. Yeah, you need to grovel. Look what I did for you. No, that's not God at all. His goal is to do what? Verse 10. To exalt you. Some translations say he'll lift you up. But, but, but the word is much stronger than just like, oh, I'll pick you back up, man. You're okay. No, it's the, it, to, to exalt you means to give you honor. To put, put you in a place of honor to put you at his right hand, to give you the best seat in the house. Listen, there's a sense where, where he will exalt you both now in, in one way, in some ways, and he will exalt you eternally in the, the best of ways. He will exalt you right now. He will give you the honor and the acceptance and the love and the grace that you need, that you want. You are a beloved child of God, Christian. You hear me? Yes, your sin murdered Jesus, but your sin didn't keep Jesus on the cross, did it? He rose from the dead. He's not still there. He's reigning and ruling. He's got the scars to prove it. And he says, welcome. Anyone is willing, who's willing can come to me and I will exalt you. I will lift you up. You can experience unconditional love and acceptance if you will humble yourself. Because this is the paradox of Christianity. No other religion says God came down and gave his life for us. No other faith says the king becomes a slave. But Jesus does. Christianity does. 
And he says, you follow me. The paradox is, the lower you go into sorrow and humility, the higher you go in honor and joy. The last shall be first. The weak are strong. Church, listen, that's why every Sunday we gather like this, to remember how both low we really are and how exalted we really are. We read scripture, we pray prayers, we sing songs that help us confess our sin before the Lord. Why? Why can't we just come in and have it all be full of fun and joy? Some people have said that over the years. Why can't our services be lighter and happier? To that I respond, because our worship service is intentionally ordered around the gospel, not around your happiness. I get it. I'd love, we could draw a crowd. We can do that. But instead, we let the gospel shape what we do as a church. Come what may. Because the gospel teaches us these two things. First, the gospel teaches you, you are more wicked than you ever imagined. You've heard us say that before, right? The gospel teaches us that. The gospel wants us to feel the weight of that. The gospel takes us lower than we could ever take ourselves. And then the gospel also teaches this, that you are more loved and accepted in Christ than you ever dared hope. Richard Sives, the Puritan pastor, said this, We have this for our foundational truth. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Oh, you might want to plaster down the wall. Write it on, the, on your heart. It's the story of the prodigal son, right? What is the father's posture for us when we come broken and lowly? It's arms wide open. It's running to you. It's you and I fumbling. Lord, I, I confess I've sinned. And he takes off his robe and puts the robe and puts the ring on us and says, you're going to have a party. No, 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 no. I'm the worst. I'm the worst. Yeah, but you're the best because you're my son. You're my daughter. Let's celebrate. What? I'm a failure. You're my son. I'm a failure. You're my daughter. I've ruined everything. You've, you've done nothing to ruin me. I've done everything to rescue you. That's the picture. That's what we want. It's like a trampoline. The further down you go, the further up you go. Do you want to go really high? Get really low. Jesus wants you and I to experience the infinite riches of his grace. He wants you to know how high and deep and wide and long is the love of Christ. He wants you to experience lasting joy. That you can celebrate forgiveness, adoption into his family. You have a new purpose for living. Your, your past has been, is wiped away. Your, the future is his and you can follow him. It's the miracle of grace. Literally, he gives more grace. Some people think James is being an apostolic joy kill here. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let me remind you, he started the letter with count it all joy. Repentance produces true joy for the Christian, flowing from gratitude in our new identity in Christ. He wants you to exalt in the reality that nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. And so our, our worship services are ordered to help us experience both how the gospel takes us lower and takes us higher. And so when you read these verses, listen, when you read these verses, can you see how Jesus lived these out perfectly? Didn't Jesus submit to his father fully? 
He's always doing his father's will, no matter how hard. Don't you see him resisting the devil consistently? Don't you see him drawing near to his father? But there's a difference. We're called to repent and purify. We're called to to, to admit our sin. Jesus never sinned. He never needed to repent. And yet on the cross, he's not dying for his own sin. He's dying for your sin and mine. He's dying for us. He knew. He knew that he would take on sin. He knew it was coming. That's why in the Garden of Eden, as he was drawing near to his father, he began to experience something that we don't ever have to experience. His father began to feel distant. As the weight of sin began to bear on him and on the cross as he experienced cosmic loneliness and he's rejected and he's condemned and he's ashamed and he's beaten physically and he's literally crucified as a curse. The one who had all honor and power humbled himself more than you and I will ever be asked to. Why? So that when you and I fumble our, in our submission, when you and I fail to resist the devil, when you and I have not humility but pride creeping up in our hearts, when we struggle to live what he has just taught us here, then we can have confidence that in spite of all that, we draw near to God and he still draws near to us. Because if you've turned from sin and trusted in Christ, God sees the perfect submission, the perfect humility of Christ in you. You're united to him. And that's the hope of every Christian that we are in Christ and a new creation. That's gospel hope. He gives more grace. He draws near. He will exalt you. These aren't qualifiers. These are blood-bought promises. And because Jesus humbled himself, we know that God raised him up and highly exalted him, Philippians 2, and gave him the name that is above every other name. So too will the Lord one day exalt you, Christian. I was in the hospital this weekend visiting with one of our church members who will likely see the Lord sooner than later. And we talked about what that would be like. We talked about how in God's presence, there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. We talked about how our sufferings of this present life are not worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory we will experience in the very first moment we see our Savior. We talked about how every day in in glory will be the worst day of our lives because the next day will only be better. He will exalt you, Christian. One day he will exalt you fully. He'll knock your socks off, exalt you. We want that here and now. We want heaven on earth. Instead, he gives us his presence on earth. And glory is yet to come. Now let me end where I began. Do you need grace today? Do you want more grace? Some of you right now, you're, I don't know what brought you here. This is your first time here. Maybe you're watching online. Maybe you just showed up, family invited you. I don't know. But you need to experience God's saving grace. Where you turn from your sin and you admit to Jesus, He is the Son of God who died for you and rose again, that you might receive His forgiveness, His life as a gift. Some of us need to experience God's transforming grace. 
And we just go down deeper into humility. We go down deeper so that we can resist the devil, draw near, repent, and trust the promise of God that at the end of the day, every single day, until the day we see him, he gives more grace. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you. We depend on you. We are desperate for you. I pray that we would feel our need for you, not because I want us to feel miserable this morning, but because I want us to experience the joy of being buoyed up by grace, of letting grace launch us upward as we do the work of going downward. Jesus, you, you have risen from the dead. What is our, what is our sin and suffering? There are opportunities for you to give more grace, for you to show your resurrection power here and now, in our marriages, in our relationships at work, in our struggles with money, in our insecurities, in our feelings of inadequacy, in our anger, in our bitterness, in our struggles with lust, in our unfulfillment at work, God, it could go on and on and on. Lord, would you show every single person from the youngest child to the oldest that you would help us remember and believe that you give more grace. And this is an act of your grace. God, I pray for those who might need to repent right now to not wait any longer, to not come up with any more excuses, that they would repent and believe the gospel, the good news, and experience eternal joy, eternal life. Keep using our church. We need to be a light, a city on a hill, in a world that we see increasingly is crazy because our lives are crazy. Oh God, lift us up. Lift us up. Do in us what we could not do for ourselves as we hold out this gospel, this good news, this Savior of ours, showing people what you have done in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.